This is Peter Bart, and this is the Deadline Podcast on Film. I'm going to uh, share some thoughts about random trends in the film industry, and I'm also later going to talk with a special guest. Let's be candid about it. Hollywood's relationship with the world of sex historically has been clumsy at best and brain dead at worst, on both a personal and a business level. The men who run the town have always known that sex sells, but they haven't understood the constraints that must go along with the opportunity, nor have they been willing to deal with the responsibilities that must govern their personal behavior. But this they have learned. The penalties for ignoring these constraints are formidable, as recent events have confirmed. Now, I'm not gonna launch into another preachment about Harvey Weinstein. His appalling acts have been well covered in the media but I think it would be an interesting diversion to look for a moment at Mae West, whose career in a way exemplified the sexual neuroses of show business. Mae West died in 1980, but the ups and downs of her colorful life challenged the hypocrisies and the ambiguities of both Hollywood and society in general. Mae West was a blonde from Brooklyn who had a great bravado as well as a great sense of humor and she practiced her own form of liberation from the bums and the predators. She liked to attract attention with her sex aphorisms, like, when I am good, I'm very good, but when I'm bad, I'm better. Remember that one? Mindful of the market for the risque, she opened a play on Broadway titled, What Else? Sex. It wasn't really that sexy, but the city fathers closed it down anyway. Mae West was among the first public figures to publicly acknowledge the gay scene, and she even opened a gay show called Drag. That also was shut down, of course. Hollywood was fascinated by Mae West, but was scared to go near her, not until she reached the mature age of 40, at which time Paramount finally signed her to a deal. She turned out to be a big star, playing opposite Cary Grant in I'm No Angel, and doing a comedy gangster movie opposite George Raft when she would ask him, is that a gun in your pants or are you just happy to see me? To my knowledge, Mae West never complained that she was victimized by harassment because, well, I I think men were afraid of her and she liked it that way. Over the years, Mae West kept pushing against hypocrisy and against the powers that be, and the powers that be pushed back a contest that Hollywood is still fighting on several fronts. I was a studio executive in the 1970s when Hollywood suddenly decided it was time for movies to reflect the changing sexuality of the times. Paramount decided to distribute Tropic of Cancer based on the notorious Henry Miller novel. And of course, Marlon Brando starred in a very sexy movie titled The Last Tango in Paris, which several distributors were eager to acquire the rights to. Now, the studio heads apparently wanted to capitalize on the supposedly more open attitudes of the 70s, but they also understood a few realities, namely that they worked for publicly owned companies with conservative stockholders, not to mention conservative bankers. Their dilemma was quickly resolved because a new movie opened, 
that suddenly changed the entire landscape. It was called Deep Throat. And not only did it pack theaters, but it also underscored the differentiation between sexy movies and outright porn. Of course, Deep Throat was funded and distributed by the mafia. And as with Mae West shows, the authorities helped promote the show by clumsily shutting down screenings and arresting the theater managers. That, of course, made headlines, but also built box office. Porn's dubious moment of triumph turned out to be very ephemeral, of course. Porn video and computer sex were soon destined to confiscate the action, and the mafia, having made a killing with Deep Throat, moved on to more familiar revenue streams. So while Hollywood's clumsy flirtation with sex at the business level has been troubled and tenuous, I guess the same would apply to its missteps in terms of personal behavior. Long before Harvey Weinstein became embroiled in his predatory assaults, studio executives were linked with lurid cases of personal misconduct. The memoirs of movie stars going back to Shirley Temple were replete with tales of gross misconduct, boring old guys displaying their pathetic genitals or propositioning actresses the age of their daughters. I've often been asked over the years, is this sort of bad behavior still common today? Don't the leaders of Hollywood finally know the rules? Well, the answer is no. And that's where the Harvey Weinstein scandal could potentially turn out to be a positive event long term. There should be nothing ambiguous about right and wrong. The casting couch is an ugly anachronism, and so is the exploitation of women at any level. But Mae West, in her own idiosyncratic way, also had a point. Sex should be fun. It should even be funny. That's the way she saw it. But there's nothing funny about predatory sexual behavior, and she would have been appalled by Harvey Weinstein. She would also have argued that Hollywood has got to straighten out its act, because it's about fucking time. The career of Norman Lloyd stretches back eight decades, eight decades, and encompasses such great names and talents as Orson Welles, Charlie Chaplin, and Alfred Hitchcock. Lloyd acted for Welles. He directed Hitchcock's great TV shows, and he played a mean game of tennis with Charlie Chaplin. So Norman, this is effectively the 75th anniversary of Saboteur, which, as I recall, was sort of your first important film role. What were the circumstances behind your getting that role as the, as the, the, the nasty villain, the saboteur? So I wandered over to the St. Regis Hotel where I was admitted to Hitchcock's presence. I was in awe of this man, of the meeting, and I really had no idea what was happening. The reason I was in awe of him, as a young actor around New York, we were fans of the Hitchcock movies that were being made in Europe at the time. Because this was 1942, and it was the war, and Hitchcock had just his, had become famous as a director of action and suspense. Yes, exactly so. How long was your interview with him? I'd say it was about half an hour. It, it was just a uh, 
how shall I put it, a getting acquainted interview. Now, now, Norman, you were going to be cast as a bad guy. You were the, the saboteur. Did that make yes. you uneasy at all that you would be playing a villain? I would be playing a villain. But he didn't call it a villain. He just said a young young man who was uh, uh, very dangerous. What our audience would not know is that this presaged a long relationship you had with Hitchcock when you were effectively the director of his TV shows. I had a, um, I suppose, a gift, if I may call it that, of when I worked on a picture as an actor, of getting to know the directors on a more than just actor level. So there's a consequence in talking with Hitch and in acting for him. I got onto another level, which he saw as a, a more creative level, a level of creating shows for his programs. Now, your credentials also were helped because among your close friends were two rather gifted directors, Charlie Chaplin and Jean Renoir. Well, you speak of the greatest. Chaplin, I, I cannot say enough about Chaplin. He, he was a world unto himself. His brilliance was breathtaking. And also, working with Jean Renoir, you met an individual who was not only a great artist, but a remarkable human being. And from these men, one got a, a richness of experience of people who were living on the highest intellectual level. I don't want to be fancy about this, but these were great men, and they conveyed to you how great the profession could be. All right. Well, this this is great fun, but I have one question for you remaining. Uh, will you uh, let me come to your 103rd birthday party? Oh, if you're not there, I will commit mayhem. <laughs> You'll be the saboteur. Yes. <laughs> we look forward to it. And thank you for doing this, Norman. This is great fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you soon. Watching the new Blade Runner movie the other day, I was reminded of one of my least favorite habits, namely my constant tendency to peer at my watch. My doctor also has that habit, the frequent wrist flick. My attorney has it too, but I don't know why, since he benefits from running up the hours and the bill. On Blade Runner, however, I was perhaps half an hour into the movie when I could tell from the pacing that this would be a very long movie. And I don't like very long movies. I make it a point not to check running times ahead of the screening because I don't want to start resenting a film before it even begins. But Blade Runner at 2 hours and 44 minutes was one of those films that causes me to wonder, what was the filmmaker thinking? In this case, the director, Denis Villeneuve, is customarily more disciplined. Arrival, his previous movie, is compact and forceful, for example. But I thought Blade Runner was downright flatulent by contrast. Is Villeneuve trying to justify the bloated cost of his film? 
who is supposed to be in excess of 150 million? Or is he trying to satisfy the mythic status attained by the original Blade Runner directed by Ridley Scott, which had built its own small but vociferous fan club? Now, I realize some people like long movies. In fact, they seem to wallow in them. The favorite movie of folks like this, of course, is Lawrence of Arabia, which clocked in at a stunning three hours, 42 minutes. Now, I admire David Lean's artistry. I appreciate the fact that Steven Spielberg ran Lawrence of Arabia three times in one week when he was just starting out as a filmmaker, just wanting to lose himself in its cinematic scope and intensity. But I napped twice during Lawrence of Arabia. I also fell asleep during the three-hour movie titled Meet Joe Black, and that nap was even more embarrassing. In the case of Meet Joe Black, I was watching the movie in pre-release as a favor to Universal's then-studio chief. He was locked in an argument with its director, whose name was Martin Brest, and they were arguing about what else? Running time. I usually don't get involved in studio disputes, but in this case, it was a special favor to the people involved who solicited my vote on the issue of length. Going in, I knew that Meet Joe Black was, in fact, a remake of a film called Death Takes a Holiday. The original film was only 78 minutes long, but Martin Brest felt that that version had short-circuited the film's weighty exchanges about life and death. Plus, he had Brad Pitt in the lead. Watching the new version, however, I quickly got renewed appreciation for the economy and narrative drive of the original. I'm the first to acknowledge that brevity does not necessarily spell the key to artistic achievement. Francis Coppola is the director who's best qualified to testify on this issue. After turning in his cut of The Godfather, Coppola famously returned to the editing room, adding 20 minutes to the movie, and thus bringing new depth and nuance to his film. And it was Bob Evans, of course, who urged him to do that. 30 years after completing The Cotton Club, Coppola coincidentally embarked on the similar adventure. He returned to the editing room a few months ago and added 20 minutes to his cut, enriching the film with four remarkable musical numbers that he had chopped out earlier. The new iteration of Cotton Club represents an extraordinary improvement. I was not impatient for a moment with its pace or its narrative drive when I saw it just the other day. So the lesson, I suppose, is that each film has its own chemistry. That is the one thing you get to understand over the years of watching them. In some cases, I become totally involved in a film and don't want it to end. In others, I sense my wrist flicking, just like my obnoxious lawyer, and I instantly feel apologetic to the filmmaker whose work I've been slighting. So maybe, maybe Blade Runner deserves another look. If I do, I'll have to move quickly to catch it at the theater because it seems the audience is fading fast, a decline of almost 55% last weekend alone. Perhaps other ticket buyers too have impulsively started checking their watches. Thank you all for listening to the Deadline Podcast on Film. This is Peter Bart.